Well, it's good to have you join us. If you've been with us the last couple of weeks, we started reading through the book of Mark, and we've been talking about the beginning of the ministry of Jesus. We're in Mark chapter 2 today, and uh, there's this this place where uh, Jesus starts, uh, he's walking um, around, and he's starting his ministry. He's doing these incredible miracles. He's teaching people things about the kingdom of God, the reign of God that's coming into the world, a new way of living. And there's this one passage where he walks by this guy named Levi. Levi is a tax collector. He looks at Levi and says, come and follow me. And Levi just gets up right on the spot and starts following him. And the invitation Jesus gives him isn't, hey, come follow me for an afternoon. Come hang out with me for a little while. It's an invitation for him to leave his life and start a new one. And that always intrigues me. There are these stories of Jesus uh, inviting his first disciples, his first followers to come and to join him in a new way of life. And they seem to just do it really quickly, make this huge life-altering decision to take steps to follow Jesus, just like that. So I'm thinking about Levi, and I'm wondering, what is it about him that allows him to make a decision like that on the spot? Now, we can probably guess that Levi would have heard about Jesus. By this point, Jesus is becoming pretty well-known because he's performing miracles. People are talking about him. Crowds are coming to him. And so Levi's probably not entirely surprised. But I got to guess that there's two things about Levi's life that allow him to make this decision. One, he's probably had it with the way that he's living his life. He's probably come to the the end of, of thinking this is a great way to live. We don't know a ton about Levi, except that he was a tax collector. Means that he was probably somebody who climbs the ladder well. But tax collectors were also hated. Not much changes. Who likes the people who take their money? But even more for the Jews, the tax collectors uh, who worked for the king of the Jews, Herod. But even more than that, they were funneling taxes up people's money, their brothers and sisters, their family, their friends, up to the Roman government who were their enemies. And so people hated tax collectors. So Levi was probably someone who was good at business but bad at relationships. Probably very successful financially but unsuccessful relationally. People probably hated him. The second thing that I think might have been true is while he, in the first hand, would have probably been fed up with his life, also been inspired by the kind of life Jesus was calling people to and what Jesus was doing. And I think it had to be a combination of the two. I'm sick of living the way that I am, and I'm inspired by the way that Jesus is calling us to live. I think a lot of us are a little bit like Levi. We have a society that very much is like that. Some of us are so busy trying to climb the ladder, so busy trying to get more, trying to get ahead. And maybe even to the point where some of us have got ahead. We've been sort of successful in life, financially, business-wise, job-wise, education-wise, and yet relationally we're struggling. People who don't have deep community, people who don't feel deep peace or deep joy in their lives. Others of us maybe have got fed up with that life and we're just bored. Maybe we even failed at that kind of life. We don't feel like we're successful. We don't feel like we can get ahead. We don't feel like we have opportunities or we just couldn't take advantage of the ones that we did have and maybe we've just lowered our expectations in life. Well, it is what it is and I can't have what I want and so I have to resign myself to the way things are. A lot of us live that way and yet Jesus steps into the life of Levi, steps into our world and our lives and invites us to come follow him in a new way of living, a life that is filled with abundance, and joy. And so Levi pops up and goes and follows Jesus, leaves everything. And there's a principle in it. If we want a new way to live, we have to give up our old way of living. 
If we want a new way of life, we have to give up our old way of life. And Jesus, after he calls Levi, and then he gets religious people upset because religious people in this context, they really didn't like tax collectors or sinners. Jesus goes over to Levi's house and they start having a bit of a dinner party with sinners, with tax collectors, with all the people that Jesus is not supposed to be doing that with. In that culture, that was a sign of acceptance, of love, of friendship, of of, um, people really coming together on a deep level in a way that the religious people said, you can't do that with those kinds of people. And then the religious people come to Jesus and they start asking him, why do you look like this? Why, why, why are you not fasting? Why are you not going through some of the religious rituals that we go through? Why do you and your followers look so different? And they're upset. And Jesus gives them three pictures of what it looks like. That if you want to have a new way to live, you have to give up your old way to live. And that's what I want to talk about today. Three ways that we can do that. This is from Mark chapter 2, starting in verse 18. It says, now John's disciples, that's John the Baptist. If you're along the way with us, a few weeks ago we talked about John the Baptist, who is this prophetic figure calling people to repent out in the desert. It says, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, why did John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast? But your disciples do not fast. And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests feast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. And then they will fast in that day. Jesus here uses a picture of himself as the bridegroom. He often uses the picture of a wedding or a wedding reception, a big banquet to represent what happens in his ministry. That God has come to us, he's throwing a party, and he's inviting everybody to be there. Jesus, why do you not look so serious and religious like the rest of us? Jesus, why do your disciples not fast? These people, the disciples of the Pharisees and John, would take this really seriously. They would fast because they felt guilty. They would fast because they were mourning. They would sometimes put, you know, whitening on their face to make them look more pale and sad and make a big display of it. They go, how come you're not doing that? How come you're not taking all of these terrible things in life so seriously? And Jesus says, because the wedding is here. The bridegroom has showed up. And when you go to a wedding, you don't fast. Think of how ridiculous it would be to show up a wedding and say, oh, I'm not eating today. I'm fasting. Jesus is giving them opportunity to celebrate I think the first thing we need to pick up if we want to uh, abandon our old way of living to accept Jesus' new way of living is to stop. We need to stop what we're doing and accept that Jesus is doing something new. The wedding has come. Weddings are about abundance. And Jesus is offering abundant life. Now let me talk to you about that for a second because uh, we might get confused between abundance and excess. They're very different. Abundance means we have enough. You go to a wedding reception and there's enough food and there's enough drink. There's enough joy and laughter. There's enough relationship in the room and friendship and family There's enough of all the good things that you need. That is a picture that Jesus continually gives of the life that God wants for us to have. One of abundance. It's why he does a number of the miracles that he does. Think of it. There's one miracle where he feeds thousands of people with just a couple of fish and handful of loaves of bread. And everybody goes, how are you going to feed all these people? And he miraculously feeds all these people. He's saying the life in God is enough God gives you enough. After his resurrection, Jesus performs this sign for his disciples. They've gone back to their life of fishing. And Jesus shows up to them and they come after a whole night of fishing. And he says, uh, you know, 
take your nets and, and go out and fish again. Put them on the other side. You're going to catch a bunch of fish. And they sort of look back at Jesus saying, don't you know we're fishermen? We know what we're doing. And we went out all night. And don't you know it's better to fish at night because the fish are closer to the surface because it's not as hot. And we know what we're doing and we didn't catch anything. And now you're here and Jesus says, just go again. And all of a sudden they catch so many fish that they can barely bring it in. They're just going to sink their boats. There's so many fish. And Jesus once again is putting on display that in God's life, God gives you enough. We live in a life, not of abundance, but oftentimes with a mindset of scarcity, there's never enough. We need to have more. We need to have more. We need to have more. Even when we get enough, it's not enough. Money is scarce. Oh, we need more. And once we have enough to live off of, do we sit back and say, now I'm content and satisfied? A lot of us, we need more. We need more. We need to continue to climb the ladder. Success becomes scarce. Not everybody can be successful. And so we have to get ahead of other people to be successful, to be one of the few that really does well and excels in life. We want to win at life, which means other people have to lose. Life is scarce. Even beauty, our idea of beauty has become scarce. There's only one body type or skin tone or style that is really beautiful. And if you don't fit into it, you have to try and fit into it. Try and be like everybody else. And we move from scarcity to try and get excess. If we just get more and more and more, more and more and more success in money and beauty and style and popularity and success, then if we get all of that, but it's just never enough because we live out of scarcity. Jesus uses this imagery. The bridegroom is here. Everything that you need, you will have. God is providing everything that you need. Have you ever thought about that? It's what Jesus calls us to trust. I know that can be really difficult, especially if, if you're not used to um, being intimate with God. Maybe, maybe that's something you've never had in your life, to believe and to trust that God will give you everything that you need and you can be satisfied and content, live a life of abundance, not always needing more. The party is here. Why, why, are you, why are you guys not mourning? Why are you not so sad? Why are you not so guilty? Why you, because God has given us everything that we need. This is where Jesus starts his ministry. I said before, he calls Levi and then he goes to this house with all these tax collectors and sinners. And people get upset. How can you eat with them? How can you accept them? How can you, you be okay with the way that they're living? And Jesus says, uh, by doing this, he, he's saying, I give them everything that they need even before they change their life. Even before we get to the other parts that, that are wrong in their life, I start with love and acceptance, grace and forgiveness. Is Jesus providing everything that somebody needs on the deepest possible level? Because that's how we're really transformed out of that place of love and grace, out of that place of deep acceptance is how people really transform and change, is how people will abandon their old life and come to their new life. The bridegroom is here. We can live an abundant life believing that God has everything. Do I need to prove myself? Do I need to live an exhausting life where I'm always striving for more and more and more? And Jesus says, no, I've given you everything that you need. Verse 21, he starts with uh, another picture. The first one is the bridegroom coming, the wedding has happened. Number two, he says, no one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. So if the first thing we need to do is stop, the second thing we need to be willing to do is to surrender. To surrender uh, what's old so that we can accept what's new. He gives us just this parallel. If you had an old garment and you needed to patch it, you brought a new one that's unshrunk and then when you wash it and it shrinks, it's just going to tear a bigger hole. It's going to make things worse. He's saying that the old and the new are not compatible. 
You can't just patch up your old life with something new. You're going to need to surrender the old to accept something new. And I think here what he's calling us to is to abandon a life that is motivated by fear and accept one that is of love. See, when we're fearful, when we're scared, when that's our motivation or what drives us, we usually choose two things. We choose what is, feels familiar and what feels secure. Well, I'm scared. What if I don't have enough? What if I can't do this? What if this doesn't work out? And so we retreat to the things that are most familiar to us and the things that are most secure. But Jesus calls us out of that and says, if you really want this abundant, joyful, good life, you're going to need to learn to let go. To let go of the things that keep you in a rut, to let go of the things that are holding you back, and to accept a new thing. Religious people are some of the worst people at this because we take what we're comfortable with and what we're used to it, what we're used to, and we actually add theological significance to it and we wrap it up in theological things. And so we sometimes become some of the people who are most fearful of changing and have the hardest time changing because we confuse the things that point to God to the presence of God. And so we say, you can't change this. I can't change this. I can't abandon this. I can't do that because we think then it's sacrilegious. Some of us in our spiritual growth or our growth as people, we had a time in our life where we really learned a lot and where maybe we changed our lives and some really good things happened. But along the way, we sort of idolized that time in our lives. And instead of continuing to grow and allow God to do new things, we became stifled and we held on to those things that we learned and started to protect them and say, we can't give these things up. We'd be too scared to move that. We don't want to mess with what God has done in the past. And we've been unwilling to move into the future. Jesus, if you read through the things that he does and teaches and why most often it's the religious people that get most upset with Jesus, it's not hard to think of why. We, we think about Jesus' uh, crucifixion and why he died. And sometimes we have a lot of theological answers for why Jesus died on a cross. But there's also some very practical, real life reasons. He really rocked the boat. We see that even in the next section. Jesus um, talks about the Sabbath, this deep religious tradition that his people, his brothers, sisters, his, his ethnic group, his religious group um, had traditions around and practices around and he totally messes with it. And they get so upset when he does stuff like that that they call him blasphemous. All Jesus does is mess with the way that they read their Bible and interpret it, their temple and religious traditions, their politics, the way they view their national identity and their morality. All Jesus did was mess with everything that was most important to them. But he was saying, don't be afraid of what I'm bringing to you. You're going to have to surrender some of the old things to accept what is new, what God is doing. And some of the people were so unwilling to surrender their interpretations and their traditions and the way that they saw life and the way that they saw their morality and the way that they saw really everything, even the way that they saw God, that they would be unwilling to accept the kind of life that Jesus would have for us. Man, that should just rock us. The old and the new don't mix well is what he's saying, that we can't just throw a new patch on an old garment. There are going to be things that we need to surrender. It doesn't mean everything in our past or everything that we've learned is bad. It just means there's going to be times we realize that the old and new are not compatible. Are you willing to move into the new? Can you surrender? Can you let go? Can you be motivated not by fear 
and to retreat into what's familiar and what you already know, what makes you feel secure, but to accept what is new, this new thing that God is doing. If you can't surrender, then you're going to miss out on the new things God wants to do in your life, the new things that God wants to teach you, the new ways that God wants to call you to trust him and to have faith in him. So we need to stop living the rat race. We need to surrender our fear and embrace the way of love that is messier and more difficult, more sacrificial, but more real, more rewarding, more deep, more meaningful. And then the third picture comes in verse 22. And no one puts new wine skins, wine into new old wine skins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins and the wine is destroyed and so are the skins. But the new wine is for fresh wine skins. Third thing we need to do is be willing to stretch. We need to be flexible. Like I said before, we often, especially in churches or religious circles, we confuse the things that point us to God or the things that were meaningful in our past with God himself. And we become unwilling to become flexible. But Jesus says, listen, if you're so rigid in your life, then when God wants to do something new, and the picture here is that wine, new wine, was poured in over time, um, there are gases that released and it actually expands. And so if the wineskins are too rigid, as the wine expands, it's going gonna, it's gonna to burst open. You need the, the kind of wineskin that's going to be flexible and it's going to grow with the wine, that is going to be able to expand and open itself up to be a good container for the things that God is pouring in, the joy, the peace, the new way of life, the wine that represents the really good, abundant life that God wants us for. If you're too rigid, if you're not willing to change, you're going to miss out on that. Jesus tells another parable, the parable, uh, we often call it the parable of the, the sower, the seeds, uh, where um, there's these seeds that are sown on all different kinds of soil. Some of it's shallow, some of it's rocky, some of it's hard. He says those seeds, for whatever reason, they're not really going to grow. They're not really going to flourish into the kind of plant that they're supposed to be. They get choked out. They don't have enough uh, roots. They don't get enough nourishment. But the question is, are we the kind of soil that's good soil that allows the roots of what God teaches us to grow deep inside of us? Are we the kind of people who are receptive to what God wants to do in our lives, to have faith, to have trust, and to move into those places? And that's what Jesus is talking about here. Are you so rigid that you're not willing to have an open mind anymore, that you're not willing to have an open heart to the new things that God wants to do. Jesus is teaching, I'm doing a whole new thing, but don't miss it by being too rigid. And again, especially, I think probably all of us, because we get comfortable with where we're at and we get comfortable with some of the maybe changes we made in the past and we get sick of always having to change. Uh, and whether we're religious or not, that could be true. We might be the kind of people who have built up walls against God and so we become rigid and say, I'm just not receptive to that anymore. But we could also be religious people who say, well, I've accepted God, but everything I learned earlier in my life, uh, that is my faith and I can't change. And I, if those things get threatened, then I feel like my faith will erode. And both of those types of people could be the kind of people who are no longer receptive to what God wants to do in their life. Jesus said, if you want to be good containers for the wine, for the good life, you need to be flexible. You need to stop one way of life. Stop the rat race. Stop trying to prove yourself. You need to surrender some of the old things that don't fit anymore. And then you need to be willing to let God to stretch you so that your life, your heart, your mind can be the kind that learns and grows and experiences new beauty and awe and wonder of the things that God is doing inside of you and all around you. And this life, as I've been alluding to over and over, is the kind of life that Jesus says is abundant. It's joyful. It's what we want. 
what's best for us. But if you want a new way to live, then you have to be willing to give up the old way of living. One of the words we might use instead of joy, the kind of life that we want, might be ecstatic. I want an ecstatic life, which is a great word. There's two parts of it. The first, just the EC, the ek, means to move out of, and static is static, staying the same. You want an ecstatic kind of life, then you need to move out of what is static, move out of what is dead, move out of what is no longer moving forward. And as threatening as that is, it's so exciting. It is ecstasy, joy to continue to see how God is doing new things in our lives and then to choose one step at a time to follow him. If we want a new way of life, we have to be willing to give up the old way of life and start to take those steps to move out of what is static and to embrace the joyful life of God. So what should we do about that? How do we go about doing that? What do we do now? I think you probably already know. And if you don't already know, if you spend some quiet moments reflecting and listening to what God might be speaking into your life, I think it'll become clear. And for most people, it doesn't start with huge, massive steps. It starts with the small, little things in life that we often know God is calling us to. To stop doing something, to stop gossiping about people or slandering people, to stop being so selfish to start doing some things, to start looking at people differently, to start forgiving people, to, to start walking in love, to start sacrificing, to break an old habit, to start a new habit. It usually starts in the small things that God calls us to as we read scripture, as we read about Jesus and the, the ways he calls us to live. As we pray and as we listen and are attentive to the spirit of God, it becomes clear. So simply, I ask you this, what is one step you need to take in following Jesus towards an ecstatic life, moving out of what is static, moving out of what is dead. To stop living in the rat race, to surrender old things that don't fit with the new things God wants to do, and to allow God to stretch you and continue to mold you and make you into the kind of person he wants you to be. Because you're his masterpiece. And that's his good work, is to continue to form you into the best version of you all the good things he created inside of you. This week, I lost a friend. Her name was Joyce, and uh, Joyce was a missionary pilot, and she flew um, health uh, care um, and humanitarian aid products, things for education, and even recently COVID-19 testing kits into remote parts of the world. She was a missionary pilot in Indonesia, and she'd fly into these villages that were very remote, and that moving some of these supplies in um, were really difficult or impossible any other way uh, except flying. And on Tuesday, just a couple of minutes after taking off, uh, there was technical difficulties with her plane, and uh, she was killed in the crash. I remember meeting Joyce in seminary. And Joyce was one of the most authentic people I've ever met, one of the people who had the most integrity of, of anybody I've ever known. We had these deep conversations often where she would be really reflecting on who she was, who her identity was, who God had created her to be, and the kind of life that God was calling her to. And she wanted so badly to follow that, that call, to do what, what God had called her to do. Before she had come to seminary, she had got a master's degree at MIT. She was a technological genius. And along the way, she had worked all kinds of really great jobs with big companies paying a lot of money. 
And I can remember as she continued to search her soul and who she was and what God was calling her to do when she told us that she was getting so excited to become a missionary pilot, that she wanted to go to Indonesia, that she felt that this was God's call on her life, that she would give up this life that she was living here and devote her entire life to that. And so she spent years training, training as a pilot and an instructor, training in the good news of Jesus, training to be able to go and share these humanitarian supplies, her life, her joy, and the good news of Jesus with people who desperately needed to hear it and people who were desperate in a lot of ways. And the thing that struck me as I watched Joyce go through these times in her life and become the pilot and to do these things is that she had some, some tough times in her life, some, some real searching moments, but it, I never got the, the feeling that she felt like she was giving up so much to go and do this. It was her joy to go and do this. It was her ecstasy moving out of what is static and what was a rat race to go to something that was living and adventurous and meaningful and purposeful and to go and do what God was calling her to do. I read this week after she died an email, um, something that she responded to someone who was concerned because where she was going was a notoriously difficult place for people to fly. It was a place where there have been many crashes and for whatever reasons that I don't understand, a very hard place um, to operate aircrafts. And they expressed this in an email and she wrote back and she said to them, I'm not afraid to fly. I've come to terms with this a long time ago. And even if I die doing this, then I die doing what God called me to do. And I have no regrets about that. I want to be more like Joyce. Because I want to be more like Jesus. I want to be willing to take those steps small and big steps out of the static, out of what is dead, out of what is not changing and be willing to follow where God leads to move out of the static and into the life that God calls us to. And when you get a picture of that, you become kind of like Joyce was or like Levi was, that when he says, come follow, you get up and you go and it all starts with a step. Heavenly Father, would you give us courage? Would you help us to get a glimpse of the kind of life that you want for us, the kind of life that's filled with joy and purpose and meaning? Would you help us to stop, stop living the kind of life that, that doesn't lead there, to give us courage to deal with our fears and move in one step at a time to the life that you've called us to live as we surrender what's old? Would you help us to be willing to be stretched by you, to learn from you, to grow as people even when that's difficult, and there, God, to find a life of joy, a life of ecstasy in your presence? We thank you for the Lord Jesus who shows us the way, and it's in his name we pray. Amen.